All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Dog House with Adam and Jimmy. I'm Adam. Welcome, my buddy, Jimmy Rogers. Hey, Adam. How we doing, man? Man, I'm good. I'm good down good here deal. in Alabama. Yes, sir. Yeah, we had sunshine <clears throat> and 70-some degrees. Got dogs in the water today in Kentucky. It's that time of year, man. It's raining like a cow pissing on a flat rock here all day. No kidding. We had that yesterday afternoon. That's very nice. So late getting in this evening. Yeah, it's it's been raining all day. Took care of some some chores in town and some other stuff that we needed for the kennel. And we got new kennels coming in at the end of the week, and uh, we got to get ready for that. So, awesome. it is what it is. Um, yeah. I got a I got a message, a couple of messages today, but been getting a lot of messages and feedback. And man, we love that. But I got one in particular. Um, I believe his name was Chris Hyde. He said. You know, we love what we're doing, loves hearing about the dogs, loves hearing about the ducks. He's coming from us from a little place called Australia. Huh? Worldwide, huh? Worldwide, Jimmy. We are. We done made it, bud. Got a sponsor, and now we worldwide, Australia. So. Oh, man. Appreciate him listening. Glad he enjoys it, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Speaking of the sponsor, uh, it's podcast is brought to you in part by sullivan motors in collins mississippi so um thank thank the sullivans for jumping on with us and supporting us and if you're in the market for a vehicle bs delivers um he'll get it to you and uh i put him up to the challenge chris he might get you one down there to australia if we you know if the money's right i guarantee you we can make it happen but so uh but we got a we got a special guest tonight, good friend, a good friend of ours, and a really really cool guy, and very interesting. And um, his name is Jake Latondres. Jake, welcome, bud. Thank you, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. I, I funny story about it. I mean, <clears throat> I I've gotten to know you through Jim Jimbo, and you know. When I first saw you there on Instagram, I was like, oh, how in the hell this fella says his last name? Is it Latin Dressy or what? And then Jimbo had to straighten me out on that. So, How, how do you say it? I still can't say it. <laughs> I say it. Jimbo taught me Latondris, and that's what I stuck with, bud. That's what it is. I was 13 before I could spell it. I mean, it's long and French, but... But uh, yeah, everybody everybody butchers it, but there ain't nothing I can do about it. Some people were named Smith, and I got stuck with Latondres. <laughs> <laughs> so where does if that come from? It, they'll never forget it, though. That's, the thing. That's right. Uh, what, tell me where that comes from. Is that Italian or? It's French. No, French. It's French. Huh. And and believe it or not, as as soft as this is going to make me sound, it means the tenderness. In French, <laughs> so weak ass. That's <laughs> <laughs> like naming your son Sue. It just has to toughen him up. Yeah. That's right. That's Take right. That's right. It really That's is right. a cool name. You know, me and Jimmy just we got old redneck names like Camel and, and Rogers. You know, it's about as basic yeah. as it gets. Might as well just put redneck right behind that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Um. Jake, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about Jake Latondres. Fill us in a little bit, man. That's you know. Well, tell tell me something I, I don't know, and and something that ever, nobody really might know, or something. You know. 
I don't know if I want to go there or not. And <laughs> <laughs> that might get us all in trouble, but um I I originally I live in Colorado and I've been out here for thirty one years. Um I originally came from West Tennessee. I cut my teeth and grew up on Kentucky Lake and in the Camden Bottoms there is where I grew up duck hunting. And uh you know, now I'm, I, I live out in Colorado. I got a degree in wildlife biology and uh, pursued a career that has nothing to do with that. Um, I'm a filmmaker, uh, uh, a photographer, and I own, I'm part owner in, at Prairie Rock Outfitters. And I own a, a bar, which is extremely suppressed right now, <laughs> but yeah. I own a bar in, in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, and, and that's about the size of it. You know, I do a lot of, do a lot of work in the outdoor industry for different people Been working with, uh, Jim Ronquist and RNT for about almost 20 years now, I think 19 years to be exact. Um, and you know, just love being in the outdoors. Don't do it for the money. That's for sure. Just do it because of the passion and the love for it. Just like you guys are training dogs a retrievers for a living um i do what i do for the same exact reason because we love what we do that's right yeah absolutely um talk about jim a little bit because that's how we know each other and um everybody loves jim when, when tj was on with us he said if uh you don't like jim you got something bad to say about jim ronquist and you're probably the asshole so um <laughs> he's right so tell us about your yours and jim's relationship and with, with Rich and Tom? Well, the first time I met Jim, he was dating my mom. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so this goes back to 2002. When I met Jimbo, I was trying to pursue a career as a videographer in the outdoor industry. This was well, well before it blew up. This was even before DVDs. This was when we were still watching you know vhs and dvds were just starting to come into the picture and i had gotten a job i bought a camera a video a broadcast camera and i sent uh, i filmed a deer hunt i sent it to jay gregory who had a tv show back back then called the wild outdoors and i got the job and i thought well man this 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 might turn into something cool and of course, my passion was duck hunting. It has been my whole life since I was three years old. And R and I've always been a big fan of R and T since you know when Butch had it, and and all through all through those years up until I met Jim and John, I called I called the shop one day, and I think Angie Stevens answered the phone, and she said, "You know, R and T, can I help you?" And I said, "Can I please talk to Mr. Jim Ronquist?" And she said, can I tell him who's calling? I said, he, he don't know me. <laughs> my name's my name's Jake something. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to struggle so, with this, but my name is Jake. <laughs> yeah. I was like, just trust me. It's just Jake. <laughs> and so she patched me through to Jim, and uh, the conversation was about them needing some help filming. And I'd called at the right time. And I told them I'd give them if they came down, if I came down to Stuttgart or Holly Grove, where Jim was at the time, if he would if he would feed me and put me up on a couch or a bunk bed or a floor with a pillow and a sleeping bag, that I would I would give him two weeks of my life filming hunts for R&T. And if he 
if he liked it, then we could talk business. If he didn't like it, we would never have to see each other again. And that was in 2002. And to this day, Jim and I, I think I can speak for Jim. Jim and I are, are the best of friends. You know, we all have a handful of people we can call our best friends. And Jim is one of those people to me. He's been a, you know, we've, we've been through a lot. We, 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 you know, we've been together with the RNTV and RNT video series pretty much since the beginning of it. I walked in there uh, right after the first year. And so, you know, we've been through a lot of trials and tribulations, a lot of tears and blood, blood and sweat and all that stuff. And, you know, I don't know how many years this is. I believe this is the 15th season that just finished up for RNT. So it's been a it's been a really good ride. And I really don't see it ending anytime, anytime soon. That's right. That's a cool story, man. That's really, really cool. Yeah. yeah. Great, great videos and great TV. One of the best. Y'all do a great job, man. Well, thank you. We, you know, we, we struggled. I mean, we've been trying to figure out how to make it better. Every time we go out in the woods, you know, we try to figure out what we're going to do to make this show better. And while we feel like we've been running on a treadmill, you know, this whole time you go back and look at a lot of the shows and the production values and the people, um, the equipment, all that stuff. It just kept getting better and better and you didn't realize that it was getting better until you just stop you take a step back and you go back you know down take a walk down memory lane and see where you came from and then you know you, you realize jim's lost 130 pounds and i don't have a mullet anymore <laughs> y'all come a long way <laughs> we have <laughs> we have <laughs> yes well uh Kind of a funny story on that. Where you hunted with Jim down there at Holiday Grove, we actually have that lease now. There, we is that right? Foggy Slough. That's where I hunt. Mm-hmm. No yeah. kidding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So I've asked Jim, and he says he wants to. Sometime y'all have to come down and do a do a hunt. You know, kind of a for old time sakes thing. Dude, I would love that. That's one of the few places in my life where I've seen cotton mouths in January. <laughs> Man, it's <laughs> that's a bad just, dude uh, right there. I've hunted kind of everywhere, and it's the roughest place I've ever been in. That place is is something. We we talked about that with Jim about dogs retrieving and that, and man, that just everything about it, just getting in, getting uh, out. It, it's a it's a struggle. But when there's birds nowhere else I can find, we've got a some there. You know, we, no not, doubt. Yeah, they're always there if you can if you can just go through the effort of getting in there. And the traffic still runs, the duck traffic still runs the same there, that same line? Apparently, we built a blind. I hunted it two years before I built a blind on it. And I actually had an excavator go in and dig a levee out into that thing about 75 or 80 yards and built a blind out in the slough where we can walk in on dry ground. And we have a P-Row at the blind. We put our decoys out, and we run traffic right there. And then... And as long as we're getting fresh birds, we can kill them pretty good. They'll get stale like anywhere else, but as long as there's fresh birds coming, it's a pretty steady, pretty steady hunt. Wow, that is really cool and very ironic that you guys have that lease. And and I tell you, you know, I mean, for the first year, really the first two or three years, that's where the majority is either there or out at the Stevens Farm. You know, they're one of their uh, one of their irrigation lakes uh that they irrigate you know their rice with 
it was either at, at, at Boggy Slough or at the Stevens Farm where most of those videos came from. And I mean, you know, I'd be like, we'd be, we'd be done with a hunt or something. And I'd go in and ask Jim, hey, man, is there anything I can do to help you? And he'd say, well, man, I'd love for you to go out there and cut brush and, and and brush the blind up and tidy it up a little bit, and I'd be like, uh, except for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to become a, a full-time cottonmouth uh, hunter, I'd say any time from about now till it frosts would be a good time to find them right there. There is no shortage. Oh. Cottonmouth, Nutrat, and Beaver are at home in that place. That's so what I got to I got to tell you this story about Boggy Slew one time. Me and Jimbo and Jason Jaton, um, who used to hang out with RNT a lot, particularly when he used to help Jim guide, uh, you know, out of, bo- out of boggy there. And we were, we were bored one day and we decided to go nutria hunting in a boat. And I filmed it. And Jason had a, I think he had a, a I mean, I, I 22, or something. I don't remember what kind of rifle we had, but he had a rifle and he sat up on the front of that boat. I hope I'm not incriminating us, but this was like 19 years ago. And, and I don't know how many nutrients we shot, but I remember one time they were lined up on a log and Jim swung his, he had a, a, a go devil, a, a, an express boat with a go devil long tail on it. And he swung the boat around and lined up with that log perfectly lined up with that log in a linear perspective. And Jason shot once and killed seven of them with one shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there, I don't think there's any law. I think most states offer a reward for kills. You know, there's. I don't think it would be anything against killing them. I, it, I, that doesn't surprise me. Some people, I'm sure that would sound almost unreal, but I, I totally get it. I mean, to go from the boat ramp, we go up above a beaver dam. When I, from there to jump the beaver dam and up, any given day you'll see a hundred. There, it's unbelievable. I cannot yeah. believe y'all have that slew. That is, that's great to know that you guys are hunting there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we love it too, man. It's just it's just a cool place. We've got some we've got several really good places to hunt, but I didn't know when I leased it, had no idea. About, I knew about it, but I didn't know uh the Jim had 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 that lease and get to ask it around and somebody said, "Yeah." And so I was talking to him one day and he's like, "Oh yeah, that's where I you know guided at, hunted all the time. He knows the y'all both know all about it. It's a it's a special place." He called it the creek, place. didn't he? He yeah, called he called the it creek. the creek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, But you know, if you look back in the archives, I'm talking about in the, the annals of the RNTV archives, even before, really before TV, we did a show there with Jenna Peanut, Jimbo's daughter, and she was probably about, I want to say, five or six years old, maybe. She's what, probably twenty or twenty-one now. I mean, she probably maybe even four or five really and we had a conversation in the blind about looney tunes and bugs bunny and sylvester and tweety and we duck it was just me and jim and jenna and at the time jimbo had two blinds set up because he was guiding and he filled both blinds up and he there was a, a gap in the middle just brushed in and, and like a little tunnel there and he that's where he stood and called and worked the jerk cord and all that so jenna was sitting on one of the dog stands and uh, Jim's old dog at the time, it was her very last hunt, Katie. Now, sometimes you go back and, and hear Jimbo talk about Katie, his first real, you know, dog that he loved, truly loved, and and uh, before Tank. And 
that whole video, literally, I remember filming it, getting back in the truck, getting back to Jim's house in Hollygrove. And he said, well, what do you think you got? I said, well, you only shot two ducks, a spoonie and a green wing teal. But I think this will be the first tearjerker you guys have ever had on a, on, a, on your video series because one day you guys are going to look back at this, particularly with Peanut, and cry because this has been captured on video forever. And I've always said as a filmmaker, a director, a producer, whatever, I've always said you can strip the sponsors, the money, and the, the, the infamy and all that stuff away from what we do. Because at the end of the day, when you capture hunts like that, then you have it captured forever and you can go back and relive it and you can never take it away from somebody. Yeah. So that, 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 you know, when I think about Boggy, that's what I think of is that hunt with Jen. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's a great, well, you know, when, when uh, Jim was talking about that and talking about the dogs and hunting down there, it, he got very emotional. I mean, you know, he re- mm-hmm. it was something to reflect on. So It choked I'm him sure up on proud, the podcast. proud to have that, you know, on, on video. That's cool. When he gave that when he gave that lease up, I remember having you know late night conversations with him on the phone about it because he just kept saying, "Man, man, man, I don't know, man. You know, if I got to give that up, what, what if I ain't got another place to hunt and guide? And what if this TV show don't work out and sponsorships don't come? Then I'm then I once I give it up, I can't never get it back." And, you know, he was very emotional about the, the, the decision that he made to give that lease up. But, you know, looking back on it now, it would be a, it would be freaking awesome to go back there and hunt and film a hunt. What we ought to do is get me and Jim and Jenna and, and to go back there and hunt with you guys at Boggy at your at your pit and just relive that whole video because we still have that thing on tape and we could we could make a really cool you kind know, of blend, blend the two together where you could see it from the end of now exactly exactly yeah, yeah. that would be pretty cool let's uh let's talk about that when uh when we're done with this we'll have we'll get a conversation we'll make some plans for that i feel like we can okay. make that happen mm-hmm. yeah that should be easy i mean jim's close we just got to coordinate it with jenna and then i gotta get my butt down there that's gonna be the hard part i'm coming down to the south here tomorrow actually i'm flying to alabama yeah and it's another thing this that the videography has led you into tell tell us what you're coming to alabama to do yes so i think i'm a i'm one of the head camera guys for the bassmaster elite series um i work for jm associates jerry mckinnis associates and bass um, they're out of Birmingham, and JM is out of uh, uh, Little Rock. And so I'm flying to Huntsville tomorrow and then getting my rental car and driving over to uh, Pickwick and staying in Florence. And we're going to be uh, filming the Bassmaster Elite Series, which starts on Thursday on Pickwick Lake on the Tennessee River. Um, it's the third stop of the two- 2021 season, and – um, it looks like I've been watching a bunch of guys that I'm friends with on Instagram, like Seth Fighter and Brandon Polinick and Derek Hudnall and uh, Greg Hackney and some other guys, and they're catching some big fish. It sounds like y'all had 70 and 80 degree weather over the last three or four days, so the fish are moving up to spawn, and they've been catching some big ones. So I'm I'm pumped. Probably a heavy sack, won't it? 
Mm-hmm. There'll be some big ones. It'll be it'll be a lot different than the last event we covered in Knoxville on Tennessee River, where it was you know it was it was pretty much dink and dunk because it was cold and nasty and foggy and raining and yeah raining like crazy and and the the lake was d- way down and it just made for some tough fishing. But this one ought to start. You know, this one ought to ought to be pretty good. Looking forward to it. My, my old stomping grounds. How many uh how many events like that do you cover for those guys? I cover yeah, I cover all ten Bassmaster Elite events, including the, the classic. And then I cover sometimes I'll cover some opens when like a, a two day two day coverage on, on the Bassmaster Open series. Uh, and then they typically send me to either the college uh, national championship or the high school national championship and cover that when that goes down. Well, well, I bet that's fun. I, that would be that would be a good time. It, we learned we, the funnest part about the whole thing is the boat ride. First of all, because they all got you know they've all got eighty thousand to a hundred thousand dollar boats. I mean they're all just completely tricked out with the highest technology you can possibly imagine, and um. And then, you know, the other part is when they're catching or really even when they're not catching them, we learn so much from those guys because they're so acutely knowledgeable about what they – I mean, they're truly professionals at what they do. And just as much as, you know, a professional uh, – Peyton Manning or Tom Brady are at football, some of these guys are the same – at the same level of bass fishing. And so we get to learn so much from them. <clears throat> And I, you know, we talk about it in the camera trailer a lot of times that we might very well be the most knowledgeable non-bass fishing, <laughs> you know, guys on the water because we learn from the best anglers in the world. And we don't, while we do bass fish, we don't bass fish like they do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Those guys, <clears throat> they take it very serious. I know I, the, the college deal here was very big. You know, I, we have a local mm-hmm. university. Uh, I know they... <clears throat> they compete in it and and uh those guys put a lot of time in i mean they it's when you say professional i mean they spend the time and the effort and and learning and and do a lot to to become that deep into that game it's amazing what they do know and how they, how acute they are to their surroundings you know uh i mean you know they know they they can tell when you hear a splash off in the distance they can tell whether it's a carp or a bass and while, you know, if you if you listen long enough after, you know, they know what they know, then you can you can start to tell yourself. But to the naked ear, you know, a splash is a splash is a splash. But I mean, it's that kind those kinds of things that, you know, if they hear a bass, they're immediately going straight to it because they know that's an active fish. And if it's a you know, if it's a three or four or five pounder, they know it's going to help them upgrade their 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 sack or you know be a be the first fish in the boat and it's every every cast is really important and those, those guys are, are just really really good at it it's incredible yeah it's, yeah. In, uh, it's almost like they feel the fish don't they they do they are i mean just like y'all know you know i, I would say this too you know dog trainers amaze me because y'all know what's going on in a dog's head and every dog that comes to the line, whether you're in training or you're at a hunt test or a field trial, whatever it is, 
y'all know the mood of the dog. You can tell with head swings or, 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 or you know, personality changes or whatever's going on, distractions. You guys know how to, most of the time, how to handle those things. And that's something that's always, you know, I, could, I, could, I guess I could compare that to these professional bass fishermen because there's an acute level of understanding that, you have you, you can't just like wake up one morning and go, hey, man, I know how dogs think all of a sudden. You know, it it takes years and lots of dogs and lots of mistakes to get to that point. Mm. And, and you all have the same same level of intelligence and the same level of, of reading your your game just like they do. Yes. It's probably very, very relatable that, that sense of acuteness that you're talking about. It's just awareness of your surroundings, awareness of, you know, a bird flying by and distracting your dog when a, when a, you know, when a, when, when, when you're running a test or something, I mean, it's all, you just, your head's on a swivel and your mind's totally focused on what you're doing. And, and yeah, man, y'all are, y'all, y'all are an, an impressive group of guys. That's for, and gals. Well, sure. well, thank you. So Jake, how does, how does all of this, fit into Latondra's media? I mean, how does it all go together? I, I see where you have Latondra's yeah, media so, and whatnot. Yeah, so Latondra's media is a multimedia group, and I've got, you know, I've got some full-time people that work. We're constantly working together, and then, you know, we work with some freelancers too, but mostly it's uh, myself, Brandon Fien, who we just, I've, I've known him since he was 13 years old. He's 18 now extremely talented kid. incredibly talented incredibly talented wow. kid and very and, and a very loyal person and as y'all know having employees in in the world that you live in and in, in any profession if you're if you're a business owner loyalty is probably the most important thing because without it you've got nothing right i mean and you're going to be going through employees constantly because there's no loyalty but when you find one that's a that's talented and b that's got loyalty that goes with that then you better hang on to them and and brandon's brandon's that kid for me that's Um, that's something you gotta have that's and hard to find it's got to go both ways too the loyalty does Mm -hmm. has to the the uh so so to answer your question, what we do, we're mostly we mostly work with with branding brands, and it might be a brand as big as you know Sitka. We you know we did photography for three years for Sitka, um, or it might be as small as a startup company, and everything in between. It just depends on you know the fit, the chemistry, the type of work, um, the the, the engagement, the intelligence of who we're working with, all those things, you know, we just filter through people. And if, if we find a good match and someone needs some, some branding or marketing or promotional values done, then, you know, we, we're prepared to come in and do either graphic design, uh, um, photography, still photography, lifestyle or product. Um, and we also do, you know, lots and lots of video work. We're actually working with, Auburn University bass fishing team now, and I signed Brandon to that role. So he's he's predict, directing, producing, editing, and uh, doing all of it. Photography for the Auburn bass fishing team now, 
And so he's following them for, I think, five or six events this year, and he'll be covering the entire uh, Bassmaster College series um, with Auburn. And the the series is going to drop uh, March 21st uh, here in a few days, and it's all about them. It's called the Reclamation Series, and it's all about – it's a, it, we tell stories. That's what we do to answer your question. And this story is going to be about Auburn – Losing their position last year as one of the top five bass fishing teams in the country because of COVID. They got restricted to travel while these other schools still had the ability to go. Auburn got locked down and they, they couldn't represent their school. So they dropped from like top five to number 69 in the country. And so they, they took, they took that very personally and they've got some of the best high school bass fishermen in the country recruited onto their team now, along with the people that are, they already had um, that came back as, as seniors this year. And they're gonna their their goal is to go back and tell their story about how difficult, you know, it is to to pursue a bass fishing career and and juggle that with the college life as well, studying on the road living out of hotels, living out of trucks and boats and trying to get it all done as college kids. So we're pretty excited, but that's really in a nutshell. That's, that's pretty much what we do. That sounds cool. You know, if, if, if everybody don't follow Brandon on, on Instagram, you ought to give him a look and just see it. Some of his work It's it's truly, it's truly remarkable. 18 years old and as talented as he is, is impressive to me. He, he, he's a workhorse. he, you know, he always does what we ask him to do. He's always asking what else he can do to help. He's extremely talented. He, you know, when I met him when he was 13 years old, he told me the story. I did a documentary about him, and his story was that he had mowed yards one summer and saved up four or 500 bucks, went to Costco, bought a camera kit. It was a cheap Canon T6, I believe it was and had two lenses with it cheap piece of crap lenses and he he lives he's from the sacramento valley out in out in uh, northern california and there's a ton of snow geese and pintails and ducks out there that's it's rice it's very similar to arkansas with mountains around it um it's all rice farms and pecan farms and they got a ton of birds there so his dad on weekends would take him out to the National Wildlife Refuges in the Sacramento Valley, and he would just literally stay out there from daylight till dark shooting photos with his cheap camera and lens kit. And when I met him, I, like, I didn't stop. I didn't go, I'm going to go find Brandon Fiend. I was just, you know, surfing through Instagram, and I saw a photo, and I was like, wow, that's really good. And I started, I went to his page and started thumbing through his portfolio and thought, wow, this guy's really talented. So I looked him up and I sent him a, a direct message. I said, man, how? Or I said, what do you do for a living? He goes, well, I'm, I mean, I just started high school. <laughs> and I was like, what? And so, you know, obviously I started digging into his story, talked to his parents. I befriended them. We all became friends. I went out to uh, California to meet him and film what he does in his element and just found him to be extremely fascinating and lucky for me. Um, he's, you know, he's my right hand man out with Tondra's media and love the kid. You guys go check him out at Brandon underscore fiend F I E N on Instagram. You will not regret it. 
You can be one What's of the. That? I said you will not regret it. You can be one of the fifty-something thousand like me that follow him, and then just to get to see what he does. Yeah, he's very, very talented. He he knows how to paint a picture with a camera. And that's that's a true talent too. Just like um, bass fishing and and training these dogs. There's an Absolutely. art to it. Absolutely, you you got to understand your craft, right? He, you know, relating this back to us, our relationship, you know, uh, he he's probably he he's sort of morphed into an assistant guide like, uh, this past year at Prairie Rock. And I think we're going to turn him loose on some on some solo hunts with clients this year um, as a as a, you know, a hit, as a as a lead guide. And I think we're going to, you know, he's going to be working with Koi quite a bit this fall and winter. So, right. you know, he's he turns out some really fabulous photos of Koi, um, who is, uh, you know, we're we're partners in this dog. And and by the way, how's Koi doing? She's doing good. We're going to get the. Get to her and, and Tanner and all a little later, but she's doing fantastic. Good, good. Mm-hmm. So go over to Prairie Rock, man. So let's let's get into some duck hunting. And really tell tell everybody what Prairie Rock is because it's, it's so cool and what all you guys hunt and what you offer and tell us some stories about Prairie Rock. Yeah, so Prairie Rock is a dream come true. I mean, I, I don't even know. I mean, when I came when I came out to Colorado, I moved out here to finish my degree in wildlife at Colorado State because UT Knoxville just didn't have the curriculum that I was looking for. Plus, I was partying way too much. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been there. And 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 so when I got to Colorado State, I started looking for places to hunt, and just happened to i mean it's a long story about how i I found the north platte river i mean i didn't find it lewis and clark did but (laughs) you know i i I discovered it for myself and i came from the camden bottoms in west tennessee which was notorious for you know fights at the boat ramp and people swing shooting ducks and just just really a soap opera of a duck hunting area and duck hunting and a pirate they're, they're, I used to call them pirates. And so when I, when I, you know, stumbled across the North Platte River for the first time and saw what the resources were out there, I just felt like I literally felt like I, I, it was a dream come true. And lo and behold, 30, almost 31 years later, you know, or really 20, 28 years later, when I bought into Prairie Rock, um, this this opportunity to to lease a ranch one one ranch came about and so now we have in our in our control and our we, we lease it we don't own it but we have a long-term lease on it and we have uh, 28 miles of river bottom on the north platte river and about 350,000 acres that we control and you know we have elk opportunities for nebraska residents we have giant uh, giant Rocky Mountain elk that have migrated down the North Platte River from Wyoming. We've got big mule deer, giant whitetails, two different subspecies of wild turkeys, including hybrids, um, and and lots and lots of ducks and geese and pheasants and and all that stuff. So, you know, we offer, we try to exploit every resource that we have. We we manage our resources for the you know the highest 
population densities and the healthiest herds. Um, my partner, Ryan Livingston, is a fourth generation ran- rancher out there. So, you know, we're it's Western. I mean, it is a full blown Western experience when you come out. You're amongst the cattle, the ranchers, uh, lots of land. You, I, I tell people before they come out, it, it, you get it, you feel like you're hunting like at Yellowstone National Park or something because there's no one else around. You got all this private ground to yourself, and 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 all these resources. You know, it's I'm not gonna say it's easy because hunting's never easy, but you know we can manage the pressure so you know we don't we don't overhunt. Uh, Prairie Rock. It's a it's a it's a great place. I feel lucky to be a part of it, and I'm just just glad to be there. Jimmy, that sounds like paradise, don't it, bud? Man, don't it? When are y'all gonna come out and hunt with me? We need to put that on the calendar. I'm I'm coming next year. I got it on the books. Yeah, I'm in on that. I I I have never hunted in the Central Flyway. I went to Kansas uh, the first of February and had a fantastic time. And I see now that where all the birds are. So I'm I'm in for anything out that direction, and I've heard I've got a few dog clients that come out and hunt the Platte River, and that that's all they want to do. You know, they're they're eat up mm-hmm. with it because of the number of water found their chances, and they, like you said, they're out there. They said they'll be hunting and not hear anybody else shooting. You know, that's mm-hmm. how far away they are from other people. They said it's fantastic. So I'd like exactly. to just see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have we'll have all you guys out. They uh, you know, it's it's. It's skinny water, and sometimes you're hunting, you know, the open the, the open river on sandbars and shallow areas, and other times, like where we are, we have these uh, natural phenomenons called geothermal sloughs where the water literally and ironically enough filters down through the sand hills from the prairie pothole region where we raise ducks and filters through the sand and hits the water table runs downhill into the into the, the the North Platte River Basin. And when the water percolates back up out of the ground, creating these warm water sloughs, it's 55 degrees when it comes out of the ground. So it could be 10 below zero, and our warm water sloughs are wide open. <laughs> and that's why we have, you know, it's corn. I mean, that's why they call it the Nebraska corn huskers, corn huskers, because it's just oceans of corn, cornfields around. And we've got open water and it's super cold, so the ducks really they really never leave. It's yeah. it's, it's, it's I mean, quite a it's quite a deal. That's the recipe that's like the perfect recipe for duck hunting. Warm water, cold temperatures and plenty of cornfields. I mean that's that's the textbook idea of how to kill a lot of ducks. And a whole bunch of mallard ducks. Yeah, that's all it is. I mean in, in once we get to Thanksgiving you rarely see, I mean, you'll see some mergansers flying the river sometimes or a golden eye buzzing the decoys in an open an open water hunt or something, but 99.9% of the ducks that we kill are, are greenhead mallards. Man, that's awesome. That's my favorite. That's like, yeah, dream come I, true stuff. I think it's, I think, <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's part of, it's if you're a waterfowler, I, I do believe that it's part of that, that we have a, 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 you know, a legendary lore and history of duck hunting that goes way back into the, the market hunting days. Even Lewis and Clark, it's well documented that they were shooting ducks and geese on their expedition, um, you know, upstream, heading upstream on the North Platte River 
system and you know it's it's there's 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 history there so if you're a duck hunter and you know you always everybody says man let's go hunt the flooded timber and yes that is the you know that is the epicenter and the the holy grail of duck hunting in my opinion is the flooded green timber of arkansas but the north platte river is another one of those places that's right there with the chesapeake bay the sacramento valley you know places like that where if you want to experience the full realm of hunting particularly hunting mallards then you got to go hunt the north platte river it doesn't have to be with us you just need to go hunt there at some point in your life now how, how does y'all's outfit in business work do you have multiple groups at a time do you have your is it how, how many people like duck hunting wise do you have several there at one time hunting yeah so we yes yeah, so we can host uh five man groups and then we double up on the duck hunts. We run two groups a day, so there's 10 people in camp. And we run a, a, a separate independent goose hunting group um, where we hunt Canada geese either over water or over corn or even alfalfa fields. Um, so we really have, when we're fully booked, you know, we'll run 15. We run 15 hunters a day, uh, 10 duck hunters and five goose hunters. Um, wow. Out, yeah. out of Prairie Rock. Yeah. Well, I was going to have that answer on my question. If y'all do much dry field hunting, you know, we we don't we do for geese, but not for ducks. And the reason why is because what we've learned is when they move, our ducks migrate east and west along the river. They don't typically go north and south once they get there. And and with twenty eight miles, you know, of of of, of linear property that we can we can scout. There's actually like a 10-mile gap between two of our properties. So, you know, we really have a 45-mile range of, of water on the river that we control. So if they're not on the east end, then there's got to be some on the west end or somewhere in the middle. And what happens is these ducks, when they, when they start to swarm on a, on a roost, there'll be, you know, anywhere from 10,000 to – we had a group two years ago that – that we had Ducks Unlimited out there to help us count them, or at least, you know, calculate how many they thought we had. And our buddy um, from DU said he thought there was about 240 to 260,000 in one flock. Man. <laughs> yeah, Unbel- it, like it was bees working a hive when they're coming in. Oh, it was unbelievable. So what happens is when the big masses start to group up on these on these staging areas – then they'll go out to feed in the afternoon and in the mornings, and instead of going and hunting that cornfield, we know they're coming back to our property on the river or on a warm water slough, so we'll let them go feed undisturbed so we don't push them out of there, and then you know we'll just come hunt. Like If they're located in the center of our property, they'll typically feed on a cornfield just south or just north of where they are, so once they go out, we know they're coming back to where they were. And we try to hunt the perimeters of them, of, of those roosts, so we don't disturb the big flocks. And, you know, just manage it just like y'all, you know, you do anywhere else. Just like you manage anything, we just want to make sure we don't beat our resources up. Just want to get a yes. little piece of the pie right there. When You know, you don't want to get right in the middle of them, but hunt the edge and get just a touch of them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That makes sense. Um, Jake, let's um, – 
Let's tell Jimmy the story about Coy, how we got together on her. Yeah, so actually Stephen Durrance, you know, I bought my dog Tanner from Stephen Durrance, and yep. that's a whole other story in itself. And I contacted Stephen one day, and, and I, I, we need another dog. Our, we have a black dog, uh, uh, a field trial, a derby dog from Jason Baker named Allie. And she had gotten into a garbage can and eaten uh, some plastic bags that that Ryan had marinated some ribs in. And she freaking swallowed them and got all twisted up in her digestive system. And they had to cut her open and pull those bags out of her intestines. And so she was out of commission. And I contacted Stephen. I said, man, we need a dog like tomorrow. <laughs> what 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 you know, do you know? Do you have one for sale? you know what we're looking for and he said well i don't but let me make a few phone calls and he contacted you adam that's and, correct. and then contacted me back and said man you might want to talk to adam because he's got a dog he don't necessarily want to sell but you know y'all might can work something out so you know i called adam and and we chit-chatted about you know what was going on and 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 you know, Adam was just, you were so kind to me. And, and I, I'll remember that conversation because I was actually at a Bassmaster event sitting in a parking lot, uh, like at a Best Buy parking lot, talking to you through this whole thing. I don't remember what town I was in, but but um, I remember, you know, the whole discussion and you were so nice. I just remember you saying, man, I'm just easy to get along with, man. You know, <laughs> something happens because I was all worried. I've never co-owned a dog with a, a trainer before. And my concern was, well, what if something happens to her? She's really that valuable. You know, if he thinks that much of her, he didn't want to sell her. I don't want to, I don't want to mess her up, nor do I want her to get hurt or killed or pregnant or whatever. <laughs> and so, you know, and then the timing was perfect because Wally was coming out to Kansas to pheasant hunt. So I ended up driving down to the Kansas border, just across the Kansas border, meeting up with Wally, and he delivered Koi, and we just had a, a big time with Koi this year. She is a great dog. She did everything we wanted her to and more, and she's the opposite of Tanner. She's she's much softer and easygoing and uh, way less hyperactive than Tanner um, and, t and takes a, a lot smaller stick to control. <laughs> but still got tons of want to and tons of bird desire and tons of go to go with it, though, so – that's one thing I yeah, like it, about her. It was really cool. The The coolest thing, too, this year, I have to tell you, Adam, we haven't talked a whole lot about this, but, you know, we split our days. I had Koi. I got two Gunner kennels in the back of my pickup, and we split Koi up every single day, Koi and Tanner up 50-50. So I typically would hunt Tanner first because he gets so jacked up. If I left him in the truck, he'd probably chew his way out of it. Um <laughs> You know, so I would hunt him first. Let's say we had six clients. We can kill five mallards apiece. You know, we'd get to 15 mallards, 14 or 15, somewhere in there. I'd call it break, go get Koi, put Tanner up, bring her down, let her pick the rest of the ducks up. So she pretty much, to a T, picked up 50% of the birds this year. Well, that's good. Mm -hmm. It was our first season, Jake. Tell, talk about, and Jimmy knows, and Jimmy can – chime in on this but a dog's first season when they've been just been trained how different is it taking them hunting 
yeah, they ju- it's just a new environment to them. There's so many more, you know, different things going on, like, you know, multiple people calling. There's you're you're in a, a, a new blind. Like, what are these dog pits? She's never seen a dog pit before. That's mm-hmm. usually the hardest thing to teach a new dog out there because traditionally we hunt out of pits along the, the warm water sloughs and the sandbars. So we have dog pits that are separate. They're 55, they're plastic 55 gallon drums that we bury right beside the pit on the guide side. And, you know, they have their own hole. They don't know whether to lay in it or stick their head out of it or pop up out of it like a Jack in the box or what they just, you know, they just don't know what to do. So there's a learning curve there that I've really, I mean, I've seen, you know, Georgia and, and Mason and some like, srs champions come out there and completely flail you know in these in these dog pit blinds so there's a learning curve but once they figure it out it's like oh okay i got it this is my hole i got my own hole and they kind of get proud of yeah that's my spot it's warm in here it's cozy you know there ain't no healing stick that can come down on me and (laughs) and and you know we're just it turns into a relationship and they become they the dogs coy and tanner become our partners i don't really look at them like you know this is a this is a dog this is you know i mean they're 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 our partners they they are our conservation officers they're the ones doing all the hard work we're calling the ducks in and shooting them and they're the ones chasing cripples down and freezing water and and icy snow and 30 mile an hour winds and you know they're 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 hunting the ducks and and rushing all the thickets which are thicker than people might think they are and lots of deadfall and heavy cover so you know it's a really great experience and koi she picked up on it really fast i think it probably took her about a week to really start getting the hang of it and man she was steady as a rock i think she might have broke maybe five times the whole year and that's a that's a lot of volleys that's that's good yeah that's fantastic man and 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 i've said that all along you know where you hunt at the dog you know when they get that opportunity and learn how to hunt those spots same thing when i was guiding it in arkansas people would come with dogs that are nice you know well trained and 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 pick up a lot of birds for them at their place and then they would bring them to hunt and we would do a you know, an elevated timber blind, you know, with a, with a mm-hmm. ramp in it. And it's so hard for a dog to figure that out or, or a pit. They've never been in a pit, you know, getting down in a, in a pit and, and, uh, you know, they would get very frustrated. I'm like, Hey man, you know, they've hunted here twice in their life and they, they hunted home fine. You know, but our dogs will go in there and do a good job because they're used to hunting that type stuff. And that, that's exactly. such a key is just getting them accustomed to what they're hunting. I tell all of my guys that too, they, you know, well, we're going to, you know, Kansas to hunt. I'm like, well, you need to practice out of a, out of a field blind a lot, you know, so they're comfortable with that. Exactly. I mean, yeah. what do you think the first thing Steven, Steven did when he got back, you know, his first trip out there, I mean, he couldn't get, he couldn't get Mason into one of those pits. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, breaking a Mustang. And the first thing he did when he got back to Georgia was built, had a guy build a box for him be able to train his dogs to get in and out of that box so that that wouldn't be a challenge when he came back out and brought other dogs out with him and i think you know it's something 
we might even, you know, we've got a lot of that stuff on video, and I think that's going to be something that typically we we try to discourage people to bring their dogs because it's so difficult, as y'all know, y'all know this way better than me, it's so difficult to say no to someone that duck hunts that has a dog and they love their dog but it may not be it may be such a learning curve because by the time they leave after three days the dog still hadn't figured it out yet and so you know there's some distraction there it takes away from the hunt and they don't realize that's what's going to happen because it's not like they're just going to bounce through you know knee-deep water and jump up on a tree stand and start duck hunting this is totally different and so you know that may be something that we might look into is you know pumping some video content out there to people particularly that are booked that have booked hunts so they know if they are going to bring their dog and they're you know once we ask the right questions and know the dog's suitable for for what's going on particularly from a safety perspective then maybe you know showing them what they need to do to prepare their dog before they come will be a really good thing. That that's a great that is a mm-hmm. great idea. And, and some of the guys who would come say from over at Georgia and hunt with us in Arkansas, who hunted off the tree stand and shoot wood ducks, well, they come and hunt those elevated blinds, and they would they would have major problem getting those dogs up there in and out. You know, because some of these things are ten feet off the ground and they got to go down up you know boards out into the water, mm-hmm. and uh, they would go home and build that you know work on it all summer and call me and be like hey i want to bring my dog back but he'll do that now and, mm-hmm. and so but they had to have that bad experience with the dog before they figured it out so that would actually be a, a great idea and and, mm-hmm. and your guys would truly appreciate it they could be working on just like you know if, if my guys are going to canada hunting i'm like you better do a lot of you know we do it here if it's somebody who's had their dog here and they're getting ready to go i'm like you know, practice that before you go to make sure they're sharp on it because you know that's what they're going to have to face, and you don't do that a lot around here. Exactly. I mean, it would be like watching the Olympics where, you know, you got all these world-class athletes, and, you know, some of them are track stars, and some of them are javelin throwers, and some of them are shot put throwers, and some of them are, you know, basketball players, and they all have a different game. They're all world-class athletes, but they come from, you know, a different world. And you can't take a shot putter and expect him to go out and, and throw a world record, you know, javelin the first time out either. So, you know, there's it's a really interesting it's a really interesting learning curve. And, you know, before I was probably more frustrated than anything and wish that I'd never told that guy he could bring his dog out here because now this is a pain in the ass and you know, we're distracting, we're flaring ducks. These guys came here to kill ducks and we're trying to deal with this dog and it became became a burden. And then, you know, as I learned more about dogs, particularly through, you know, my friends like you and Steven and, you know, all my friends at the SRS and whatnot, I became more interested in learning what they're thinking and, and how they think. And now it's like, it's a really interesting uh, uh perspective or uh activity to see a dog that's that's at the top of its game come out and fail at something because they just had never seen it before yeah yeah we i think adam did too i I, i've installed a pit like a, a true i had a duck hunting pit built and put in the ground so i can train dogs to jump in and out of a duck pit 
you know, because that's one of the biggest mm-hmm. things. Guys get out there open in the morning with their new dog and they're trained. You know, the dog may be a master hunter. May, you know, HRCH may have run in the ground, done whatever, and they go for the first time to pit, and it's dark, and they can't even talk it into jumping down. And it's like trying to push a cat down in a bucket of water. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. You, you that can't is, I, poor dog. He don't know if there's a bottle. He's got any sense. He ain't going to just jump in. You know? Oh, it might as well be the tunnel to straight to hell. Oh, exactly. <laughs> they don't know the difference. So we, we've got to where we're, we're practicing that a lot because I try to, you know, when the dogs leave here, just like Adam does or just like all most pros do, show them every experience we possibly can for those type situations. But there's mm-hmm. always something new, you know, there's always something, you know, uh, that they've got a little something different that we're looking for. Uh, I'd like to see a picture of the way y'all done that. I've never seen it that way. I'll get some next time I'm out at Prairie Rock. I've got some, you know, from the, from the, uh, from the top of the pit, but they're all buried and they got, you know, cover on them and stuff. But I'll, uh, I, when I, next time I'm out there, when I get back from Alabama, I got to go out there for a few days to clean up, and I'll I'll take some pictures and send them to y'all. And, yes, um, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to see that. That'd be because I've I've never seen anything like like what you're describing. I've never seen that before. I mean, even you know, t- let's take Tanner. He can go from we've got I don't even know how many pits we've got. Probably thirty. I, I have no idea. We got a lot, and they're all different. You know, and, and some of them are old. They were put there years ago, and some of the dog boxes are, are not located where they should be to protect the dog's hearing and and uh, all that. And then other ones, the newer ones that we put in are, you know, designed properly, and, and the dog can see, the dog's safe from hearing, the muzzle blast, and even, you know, safe from a swinging gun barrel. Um, but... My, even my dog is, is he's been out he's had two full seasons under his belt now and he knows the game out there he understands what we're doing and but he can go from one pit to the next and be totally confused because he's in a completely different pit that's set up totally different and he'll take whatever habits he had from the day before straight to that next pit and we got to work on that that morning too you know yeah yeah it's funny how those things just roll over you know, it's once mm-hmm. it starts, there it is. Yeah, that's right. Hey, yeah, before spoke. we move on, um, Jake, about this time next year, we're probably gonna have some koi puppies. So, um, everybody needs wow. to start saving their pennies, don't they? They do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Jimmy, they, I, I, koi. I had koi, and she was a nice little young dog. And when Stephen called, I told him, I said, I got one, but I don't really want to sell it, and it worked out perfect. I was wanting to have another female to breed and sell the puppies and get them back for training. So you just got a, a higher quality dog to train, you know, you know exactly yeah. where I'm coming from. And yes. it worked out good. Me and Jake owner, and that's going to be our plan. So what, tell me something, Adam, I, huh? I'd like to know. I mean, I've, I've seen, you know, Koi for three months now, duck hunting and right. got to, you know, built a relationship with her and, and came to love her. I mean, she is a freaking sweetheart. But I remember, you know, when you said, man, she's a, I, I believe she's going to be a really nice dog. What is it that you as a trainer see in Koi that you like so much? Um, number one thing that I see in Koi that I like so much is that she loves to work. She has a great working attitude. Um, there Are there dogs that are more talented? Yes. But 
She has a, just a wonderful working attitude. She comes out of the box every day. She's not sour. She comes out. She likes to run a blind. She likes to mark. She does all everything that we look for in a dog. She does it. She has a high level of burdiness, which takes you a long ways in training, even in hunting, you know. So mm-hmm. those are the things I see in her that I really like. She's still, you know, she just turned two. She's still very immature and can get distracted. It just happens. She'll mature, and one of these days she'll be a, a really, really, really solid dog. She's good now. Already has one master pass at 18 months old, so that's pretty dang she's, salty. She's, like you said, she comes out of the box happy every day, doesn't she? Every day. and she got a great attitude. Yeah, and Jimmy, she's out of uh, Papa No Jack we've talked about. Okay. That's, yeah, her, I, that's her daddy. Hopefully tomorrow. Hopefully tomorrow I'll be breeding my B-dog to chat. Yeah, so uh, she does. She comes out of the box every day, and she works She works hard. And uh, Those dogs are fun to train. They don't have to get it right every day. I mean, none of them get it right every day, but they come out and give you effort and have a good attitude. They're fun to train. So that's what I, that's what I see in Coy that I really like, Jake. Same things you, you see and what you fell in love with, too. Same thing, same yep. exact thing, man. Just yep. every day, I felt bad about having two dogs, which is why, you know, I told I told Brandon next year that I was going to let him start running Koi, you know, in the second group and another group at, simultaneously, so she gets more opportunities. Did you see? Uh, did you see? Like when she came back after her first hunting season this year, did you see a difference in her or like? could you tell that she had a hunting season under her belt? Um, You know, I didn't say just a a noticeable difference because all of those things, that excitement and that joy to work was already there. So, you know, the fact of her going hunting and all those live birds didn't have to bring that out in her because it was already there. Um, Mm -hmm. She, to me, she's, she's maybe a little bit better staying in there and digging a bird out, Mm -hmm. a, a mark in training, you know, where she may have, Went there and hunted and not found it. Now she'll go in there and she'll really, like her hunting, she's learned how to hunt more. So, and I'm sure mm-hmm. some of them thickets and stuff that you were talking about earlier, it fell in. She had to go in there and really dig it out. That had to help a lot, you know. Oh, I, I remember one in particular. I'm going to tell you a quick story. We knocked a, a greenhead down and he fell into, a, it was probably a, it wasn't a long mark. It might have been 40 yards. But the duck fell into a thick, a, a Russian olive thicket, and there was a bunch of deadfall around it, where some of these Russian olives had derooted and fallen over, and and the the duck had gotten hung up in some limbs about six feet up in the tree, and she went past it, got downwind of it, came back and started hunting around it, quartering through it and around it, and and man, you could just see her tail, just you know, she was super birdy, and. She knew, like we never. I never handled her. I just let her hunt, and I knew where the bird was, but I wanted her to find it yes. and understand what just happened. Thank you, and man, <laughs> dude. She fought. She freaking climbed up. She got. She finally looked up and saw the bird in the tree and climbed up into the V in the in the trunk of the Russian olive. And there's, you know, you gotta be careful because there's long, long thorns like honey locust thorns on those trees. So you know. We had to be careful as well, but, you know, they just, somehow they just get through it. Anyway, 
she climbed up in that tree and grabbed that duck and jumped down and, and brought it back to me. Just, and, and it was like, man, she just learned something so valuable there and she stuck with it and she knew where that damn bird was and she wasn't going to leave. She wasn't going to leave the base of that tree until she figured out where that bird was. And then she, finally she just looked up and saw it. And I'll bet you the next time that happens, she'll look up a lot sooner than she did that time. That's, yeah, that's what learns. it's all about, ain't it, Jim? That's right. She learned something. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I want to yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Jimmy. I'm sorry, buddy. Well, I was going to say before we're done, I want to I want to talk about the bar. I, I, you said you owned a bar. That's that that's pretty cool. Tell us about the bar. I want to hear about that. Yeah. So I own a. Um, What's one of one of the oldest bars in Colorado? It's not the oldest, but one of the oldest. Um, it's called the Town Pump. It was established in February on February twenty sixth, nineteen oh nine, and it's been it's been through hell and back. I mean, it's literally been through everything America has seen from the Spanish flu to World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, nine eleven. Um, the Great Depression, um, the Dust Bowl. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Prohibition. And, yeah, what's pro- that? Prohibition. Prohibition, yep. Yeah, I mean, from 1922 to 1936, I believe it was. No, no. 1922 to 1933 was Prohibition. And they were running a speakeasy downstairs and bootleg and whiskey you know, just like you saw in, in Legends of the Fall. I mean, it, it has a ton of history behind it, and it's no bigger than, you know, a living room. It's 416 square feet, and it's a, you know, it's just an old Western saloon. They don't make bars like that anymore. And I was lucky enough to have worked there as a bartender through college, and when the owner decided to sell it, he, he asked me first because I was the longest running employee there and he felt like I knew what the, you know, how to carry the torch and not change something that wasn't broken. So I worked a deal out with him and, and, um, bought it over a 12 year, you know, owner finance situation after a, a down payment and owned the bar outright. Um, it's been through everything. And when COVID hit, when on, it was a year, it was, you think this is ironic enough it was a year ago today that our governor shut bars and restaurants down in 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 the state of Colorado and my life went into a whirlwind a spinning auger into the ground a year ago today and I'm not you know this ain't no pity self-pity party because I, I I'm I'm fine now but I'll tell you what, you know, of all the things, you know, what I what I I'd go home and pray at night, man. I would, I would think about, God, the town pump's been through everything, man. Surely, surely, it can get through this. And at that time, a year ago today, we didn't know how long this was going to last. We were all washing our hands 48 times a day and <laughs> and staying as far away from people as we could at the time because we all were we were all bought into what was going on and scared of this deadly virus that came from China and all that mess. And, and, you know, here we are a year later, we've been through the, the, it it had to be, it had to be one of the worst 
periods in town pump history, prohibition had to be pretty rough too. But, you know, this, this COVID, uh, this 12 month period with COVID has to be one of the most, the closest it's ever been to bankruptcy. We were two weeks from shutting down about two months ago forever. And I felt this, this world-class guilt about me because I was going to be the owner there's been 10 owners and it's in its 112 year history. There's been 10 owners and I was getting ready to be the one that had to close the doors on this place. And we started a GoFundMe social fundraising program. And in really in three days, we raised $116,000 from people all over the world, sending anything from $10,000 donations to us to $5 donations to us. There was kids kids of parents that went to the town pump that sent us five dollars five dollar donations i'll go fund me just to help us out and we're we're starting to come back um we're still at 50 percent capacity but um with you know the, uh, all the other the 16 states that have to- that have reopened including florida and texas leading the way i do believe even though colorado is a, a blue state I do believe there is there is light at the end of the tunnel now and that, you know, whatever whoever believes, regardless of what political side they stand on. I mean, I know what side I stand on. um, And regardless of that, I do believe that whether it's people that believe in the vaccines or people that believe in herd immunity or whatever it is, I think that we're getting ready to start coming out of this. And hopefully by this summer, um, you know, we'll have we'll have the opportunity to start operating at a, at a higher level. And if we do, then, you know, we will have saved the town pump through another disaster. So it's it's kind of a, it's hard, but it's kind of a cool story, too. That's what I was about yeah. to say. That's a cool story. Just, it adds to the tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need to do a book or uh, something to keep up with all of that stuff, you know, that's. Uh, I'd like so to film down. a documentary. There's only there's still three of us that have owned the town pump at one time or another. They're still alive. All the other, um, you know, all the se- seven other people that owned it are, are all deceased. So there's only three of us c- that can tell our sides of the story. One of them is totally camera shy. Lives up in the mountains. He's an old mountain man, and I don't think I could ever get him to speak into a microphone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I may be able I may be able to go up and, and interview him and just take notes and then, you know, have a narrator um, voice voice it over for us. So, yeah, I'd like to do a documentary about the town pump. I think it would be interesting and certainly preserve the history of the business itself, because I think it's worth worth documenting. That's awesome. That's a great story. And where now where is that located? Fort Collins, Colorado, an <laughs> old town. In old town, the the building it sits in is called the Avery Building, and the Avery Building was erected in November of 1908, and in February of of 1909, these people, <clears throat> these proprietor, these uh, entrepreneurs, these proprietors of the very first you know license for the town pump, they 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 put a bar in that little in the little corner that it sits in. And it was the first business to go in that brand new building in 1909. And the reason why the town pump got its name is because there was a a hand pump 
and a whore, wooden horse trough right in front on the corner there on College Avenue. And they built the street super wide, which if you ever come to Fort Collins, you'll see how wide they are. They built them that wide so people could ride to town in their horse and buggies and do a U-turn without getting jackknifed with their horses or having to back up or whatever. So they'd come into College and Mountain, the intersection of College Avenue and Mountain Avenue, do a U-turn, swing by the the that horse trough to water their horses, and that spot was known as the town pump. So when they put that bar in, it was obvious to them that they needed to call it the town pump, and and it's held its name for 112 years. Wow, that's awesome! I love history, so that's cool. That is really really cool. Yes, sir. No doubt, um, Jake. We can't we can't go without talking about um, your friend and my friend and Jimmy's friend Stephen Durance and. Mm-hmm. And, and y'all's relationship, I know you bought Tanner from him, and that's where it all started. Now y'all do the Retriever Connection and and all that stuff. And I tell anybody and everybody that wants to know, I think he is the best hunt test trainer in the country. Um, I think yeah, that's a pretty I, I, fair statement. you know. And if anybody wants to argue with me, I would say, you know, prove it. But he's a, he's a great guy. Um, talk a little bit about Steven. I was, I was with him. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and I had a ball. But, you know, talk about yours and Stephen's relationship. Yeah, so Stephen and I, you know, I mean, our relationship really revolves around the the Retriever Connection, the podcast, the video podcast. It's a live broadcast that we do. And, you know, I'm the idiot, and he's the pro. And <laughs> I, I really, for 47 years of duck hunting, having been around labs and chest peaks and goldens my whole life thought I knew a fair amount about dogs. <laughs> and, you know, when you, when you talk to a professional trainer, if you, if you, if you've never been around professional trainers and you've been around retrievers your whole life, you think, you know, a lot until you sit down and start talking about dog behavior and, and the mental aspects of, of dog psychology then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know anything about this. So, you know, when I was doing some videos out at the pond and I look back on them now and go, holy crap, was I putting myself out there? Because <laughs> <laughs> I was doing some really, really ignorant things with my dog. And all I was doing was really just just doing what I thought you did you know with with dogs during the off season and and you know steven contacted me and said man this would make a really good podcast if you're willing to put yourself out there like you already are he said jake you don't know how stupid you really look (laughs) (laughs) and he really did say that didn't he oh absolutely and you know steven he's not not gonna say that right and he said it just like that you know, it didn't sugarcoat it a bit, and and it kind of hurt my feelings for a second, but I thought, you know, he's right. And then as a, as a producer, a film producer, I thought, holy crap, what a great story this would be. All I have to do is just, you know, just leave my ego at home and be the idiot because there, what better way to teach people that don't have enough personal security about themselves to ask questions because they're nervous or they're, they're, they think they're going to sound stupid. So why not? Okay. I'll go out there. I'll be the dumbass 
and Stephen can coach me through all this on a video in a video series, and it's gonna do. I mean, our whole goal was goal was to help people learn learn what they're doing wrong without even having to ask a question. That was our whole purpose, and so you know, Stephen and I we were friends before that because I covered um, I covered him and dude. Uh, many times at SRS events, particularly when he won his first SRS crown championship. And, and then, you know, I interviewed Steven with dude the last time dude ever did an interview when he won his, his second crown. And, and it was very emotional when he, when he passed away because I had all this slow motion footage of, of dude. And so Steven and I were, you know, we already had, this foundation of becoming close friends because of his, because ironically enough, because of his dog. And, and so once we started building the retriever connection, you know, he learned that I'm humble enough to leave, leave my ego at home and, and make myself look really stupid on video in front of the whole world. And, and, and I learned that he was willing to teach me, the things that have taken him years and lots of dogs and lots of mistakes to understand about dogs. So, you know, it felt like, it felt like a, a peg in a, a round peg in a round hole. It, it, it's great. Steven's a, a wonderful person. Kendra is a wonderful person. They're extremely hardworking people. They're extremely intelligent. Um, Steven's, I, I would, I, I say, you know, there, there's a lot of really good dog trainers out there and I'm not one to put the single one out on a pedestal over another because I don't know enough about it still at this point to, to be that way, nor do I really want it to get to, to go there because there's a lot of great dog trainers, but Steven has a level of intelligence that's, that's deep, that, that goes really, really deep. And he understands, I think the reason why you may, you know, you coined him that and gave him that, that, you know, personal title of being the best hunt, uh, hunt test dog trainer out there is because of the way he thinks. And, and that transcends into his dogs and he gets things out of dogs and understands what he has to do before he has to do it. And again, there's a lot of people that do that, you know, on a very high level. And I'm not the one to, to, you know, to put a ribbon on anyone, but I do know that Steven is extremely smart and, and extremely, good at what he does and he's able to articulate it so well he is a great teacher and Mm -hmm. the reason i say that i judged the srs at his house this past weekend and i watched there was a lot of his clients that were running their own dog and i watched client after client after client after client come up there and compete and do this really 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 hard stuff that we came up with to put out there for them. And the SRS is the epitome of a teamwork. You know, the handler can lose it just Mm -hmm. like the dog can. Mm -hmm. And, but to watch these clients of his come up dog after dog after dog and communicate with their dog and to be very smooth handling. They didn't make every decision right. Like Steven would probably have wanted them to, but they did a very good job. And you can see how good a teacher he is. By watching those guys, those um, one of his clients won it. Forget his name, and he had those two young girls that have been come up under him um, for years, and they have dogs, and they did wonderful. And then he's got a couple of 
you know, a couple of those guys were old. Like, I don't know how old they were, but they were old to me. So I'm going to say they were in their high 70s, maybe 80, you know. They were just older guys. Mm -hmm. And, man, they handled the piss out of those dogs. And Mm -hmm. the dogs were very well trained. And the handlers, Stephen had done a great job teaching them and and articulating what he's asking for them. So I I think it's, you know, you played – if I'm not mistaken, Adam, we've never talked about this, but you played college football at a very high level, right? Well, I, I was a walk-on, yes, but yes, I was there. You yes. played You played at Alabama, right? I did. I walked on at Alabama for a few years, yes, sir. So. Okay, so so I look at I look at you know what what you guys do very similar to you know playing college football at a high level. Let's take Alabama and Nick Saban. All of his players are extremely well disciplined, and it's not because he goes in and and makes their bed for them and and washes their britches and and folds their clothes for them. It's because he's in there making them do the the due diligence and the details and the dirty work. And if you don't, you're getting shipped out. You if you don't if you don't execute the way he tells you to, then you're not going to last long in this program. And I think. You know, Steven is that guy. He's hard. He's hard on his clients. He's hard on his – I say this, I'm not talking physically. He's hard on his dogs because of the expectations. And But but it's like he says, you know, a, a, a disciplined dog and a disciplined handler, they're, they're, they're happier when they know what they know, even though they don't like getting there. Once they know what they know, they're a lot happier because they understand the, the fundamentals and the boundaries around, you know, the parameters around what they're doing. And I think that's what Steven's so good at in teaching handlers. You know, again, he's not gonna he's not gonna sugarcoat anything. Everything he says to me is harsh. And I've you know, I don't it just beads right off my back. I don't it doesn't bother me a bit because of our relationship and what we do, but I could see where you know, someone could walk in and be like, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my dog into Stevens' program, and I'm gonna spend a lot of time because I don't live but three hours away. I'm gonna go down there and work with him a lot." And then he gets in his truck the first day, going, "Well, that asshole! I ain't never going back <laughs> to talk to Steven. But then six months later, he's going, "This is the best decision I've ever made for me and my dog because he he he's." He's not hiding anything. He's he he has no reason to sugarcoat anything, and he's getting us into the dirty work and doing it the way we're supposed to do it. And if you don't, if you don't want to hear it, don't show up because you're gonna you're gonna hear about it. And I think that's probably the best thing about Stephen Durrance is his attitude towards it. And he's a perfectionist, and he really doesn't. You know, he doesn't tolerate anything less than perfection. Yeah, and he demands a high level out of his dogs. He demands a high level out of the handler. So exactly, that's really all you can ask for, you know. Exactly. So. What more do you want? I mean, if you're a, a coach, if you're a parent, and you send your kid to school to play football, or if you're a, a, a parent and you send your kid to a, a teacher, a high-level educator, what do you really want? Do you want them to, you know, turn them into – uh, entitled kids of today's age, or do you want you want a, a true gritty kid coming out of the World War II era? You know, 
I totally agree. I think that's why Nick Saban is as successful as he is. He kind of and and he goes about it the same way, kind of as Stephen no does, really and truthfully. So no doubt. I mean, that's it's the it's all in the philosophy of teaching. You go home. You're still a parent. You're still a husband. You know, you have you have things you have to do at home, and then when you go to work, you put your boots on and your helmet on, and and you do it the hard way. Absolutely. 100%, man. Well, Jake, we're going we're about an hour and a half here. We're going to wrap this thing up, brother. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and me and Jimmy both appreciate you coming on and doing this with us. Yeah, man, that was great. Appreciate your time and and truly enjoyed hearing hearing all your stuff and what y'all do and that's cool. You're you're like me and Adam. You're living a dream, man. It sometimes may not feel that way, but but truly are. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys for having me. It was it was my pleasure and um, an honor to be here talking to y'all. And I hope uh, you know, hope y'all have a good spring and a great summer. And looking forward to seeing y'all uh, this coming hunting season. I, I'm definitely gonna get up there. But Jake, tell it. Um, y'all go follow Jake on Instagram. It is a really really cool follow. Um, you'll see a lot of cool stuff from building drones to duck hunting to dog work to filming in pakistan i mean it's all kind of cool stuff jake what is the tell us you have two or three kind of accounts tell us all of your instagram yeah. social media accounts yeah so so my personal page uh where you'll see a little bit of everything is jake underscore lacondris and if you can learn how to spell it then good for you <laughs> um <laughs> Or you can go to uh, check out our media, what we do with Latondris Media at Latondris Media Collective, uh, all one word on Instagram. And then uh, we do have another page. I call it the Outdoor Underscore Cameraman. And it's all about cameras, uh, filming techniques, photography techniques, you know, editing, filming, all and shooting, all that stuff. So, yeah, we got a little bit of everything out there. So, yeah, come follow us. And if you have any questions... We're always happy to answer them, and and uh, just you just got to ask. One one last thing, for those of you all don't know, on Mondays, are you and Jim still doing that uh, Instagram live? Uh, you know, Jim does it more. I'm traveling again, so Jim's there every single Monday night, and I pop in more as a guest uh, anymore than not. But him and Jenna are typically there, or or Jim's doing it solo. But yeah, hell, I know, got I, on I plan on. There you go. That's perfect. There you go. And Jim loves that stuff, too. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Monday night's a, definitely a traditional thing, uh, particularly for Jim, and it's entertaining, to say the least. Very. <laughs> if y'all haven't done that, check, check it out. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it's, it's really interesting and fun. It really is. Pour you a whiskey drink, sit down with Jim, and, and you know, and there's, if there's 50 or 100, it's almost like 100 people sitting around the country Everybody having a whiskey drink together, but it's through them old phones and stuff. So that 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 whole thing started during COVID, and Jim and I were t- we probably talked three or four nights a week, and we were sitting there talking one night, and he had one too many, and I probably had three too many, and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> at the end of our conversation, we we're like, well, by George, we just solved all the world's problems. We just solved COVID, <laughs> politics, and everything else. We ought to turn this into a live Instagram deal. And the next Monday night we did, and now it's now, you know, it's been a, it's been almost a year since we started it, uh, and it's it's a fun time. Jim is an amazingly 
nice person. Jim Ronquist oh, might be one of the nicest. Like sometimes he's too damn nice. I tell him that he really is, ain't he? I mean, he, <laughs> he is. He is truly one of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. I second that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and he don't have to be, but he is. That's right. He doesn't have to be, mm-hmm. but he but he certainly is. Yeah. So, well, well Jake, pre- appreciate it a ton, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you, guys. Yes, Y'all sir. be good. Yes, sir, Jake. Hey, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch y'all next week, guys. We out.